All right, so Ephesians 2, 11 to 22 is the passage Matthew read for us. That's our passage for this morning. We're in a series walking through the book of Ephesians, and the title of it is In United in and Under Christ. And we'll see, you know, good reason even in this text this morning for why that's the title of the series. Um, but I want to just open up here with one brief quote. I'm not going to elaborate on it. We'll circle back to it near the end. But have you ever heard the thing that Martin Luther King Jr. said? He said, 11 o'clock on Sunday morning is one of the most segregated hours, if not the most segregated hour in Christian America. So that's my introduction. I'm intentionally not going to comment on it now, but like I said, we'll return to it. So 11 o'clock on Sunday morning is one of the most segregated hours in America. All right, our outline, you'll be able to follow on the screen behind you or on the live stream page. There's notes there if you want to follow along that way as well. So let's dive into Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 to 22. And our first point, there's a really simple outline here. And follow the progression. At one time, but now, so then. Do you see it? So at one time, you were, dot, dot, dot. But now, because of Jesus, dot, dot, dot. So then, here's the implications for how we live. Okay? So three points. First point, at one time, verses 11 and 12. Therefore, in light of 2, 1 to 10, you were dead in your sins, but God made you alive together with Christ. By grace, you've been saved through faith. If you're trusting in Jesus, it's because God raised you from the dead spiritually and made you alive together with Christ. You've been saved by grace. It's not your own doing. You have nothing to boast about. And you are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus, recreated in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that you would walk in them. Therefore, remember that at one time, you Gentiles in the flesh. So back in the first century, the world was divided into two groups, Jews and Gentiles, okay? So Gentiles, just everybody else. And Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision. Do you remember when David was going out to, or he was, he was hearing about Goliath? This is before he actually went out to the, the battlefield. And he hears Goliath just defying the armies of Israel and kind of just being dismissive about the Israelites and their God, mocking. And he says, who is this uncircumcised Philistine? You see, it's like a derogatory term. Like, who does this guy, this guy think he is? So you Gentiles in the flesh call the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, Jews, which is made in the flesh by hands, just a human circumcision. So this is, is speaking to this Jew-Gentile divide that was present in the first century, and there was no love lost. It was, a, it was a, just a terrible divide. Remember, that you were at that time, you Gentiles, in Ephesus, because by and large, most of the Christians in Ephesus were Gentiles. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, 
alienated from the commonwealth of Israel. You weren't citizens in the kingdom of God. You were alienated from the commonwealth of Israel. You were strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. Okay, so Paul's writing this book, this letter to the church in Ephesus, primarily a Gentile, non-Jewish audience. And you know what? Salvation is from the Jews, right? In the Old Testament, the kingdom of God was Israel. He was their king, and his kingship was exercised through them. The covenants, the promises were given to the Jewish people. Jesus came as a Jew. He came to his own people. So Paul's writing into that context and saying to these Gentile believers, remember where you came from. Remember who you were. You were separated from Christ. You had no hope. You were without confidence. Or, I'm sorry, without God, okay? Without him as your father, your helper, your refuge, your shepherd, everything that he is for his people. So don't forget where you came from. Like, this applies to all of us now. Some of you may be ethnic Jews, but again, we're probably, by and large, Gentiles here. Why in the world are we God's people? Well, it's only by his grace. It's only because Jesus came so that the grace of God could be extended and poured out on all peoples. So remember where you came from. You might not be a first century Gentile, but this applies to all of us. So if you're a Christian this morning, remember there was a time that you were separated from Christ, alienated from the people of God, strangers to the covenants of promise. You had no hope. You were without God in the world. Don't forget who you were. It is really easy to forget. And it's really important to remember. Why is it so important to remember? Well, there's probably a lot of ways we could answer that question, but how about this? For starters, if we start to think too highly of ourselves, if we start to look down on others for whatever reason, especially spiritual pride, this is particularly ugly, if we start to subtly view ourselves as superior and others as inferior, especially if it ever happens in the church, we've forgotten who we were. So, remember. Do you see? He says it twice. Verse 11 and verse 12. Remember that at one time, remember that you at that time were separated. So, do you remember? Christian, do you remember? Do you remember the guilt? Like before Jesus, you knew the freedom of forgiveness and cleansing. Do you remember the, the like guilty conscience and laying on the pillow and looking at the ceiling at night and just, or trying to scramble and maybe be good enough and do some good deeds to outweigh the bad or whatever? Do you remember the lack of peace, the hopelessness? It's good to remember because what oftentimes happens is we just start to get humbled and grateful and overwhelmed with God's kindness and his mercy and his grace in our lives. And those superiority thoughts start to get melted away. So without hope, without God in the world, that's who we were. So in 2005, can't believe I'm using this as an illustration, but there was an interview, 60 Minutes interview with Tom Brady. 
I knew Alex would look at him. He's back there going like this. Okay. So the interviewer um, is asking these questions, and, and uh, Tom Brady at one point says, this is 2005, okay? Why do I have three Super Bowl rings? He's got seven now. <clears throat> um, why do I have three Super Bowl rings and still think there's something greater out there for me? Maybe a lot of people would say, hey, man, this is what it is. I've reached my goal, my dream. My life is, you know, like... He says, me, I think, God, there's got to be more than this. This can't be what it's all cracked up to be. I think he means it's not all what it's cracked up to be. I mean, I've done it. I'm 27. He's 43, 2 now. So what's the answer is what the interviewer said to him. What's the answer? He said, I wish I knew. Wish I knew. Guy's married to a supermodel. You know, he graces the cover of GQ magazine. He's got, now he's got seven rings. You could say, well, well, probably four more rings did it, right? I don't think so. It's not going to do it. So I was listening this past week to an interview with Jordan Peterson. I don't know how many of you have heard of him. He's a Canadian professor of psychology. He's a clinical psychologist. He's garnered a lot of attention in recent years. He's not a Christian, but he's got great respect for Judeo-Christian heritage and for the Bible. He's fairly conservative on a number of culture and political issues. He's brilliant, um, fascinating to listen to. And in this interview, the interviewer said, so this is a question that several friends of mine wanted me to ask some version of, and I would like to hear your answer. And the interviewer is a guy who spends time, his name's Tim Ferriss, he spends, basically his focus in his podcast is, is kind of deconstructing like top class performers in all different disciplines, you know? So the best of the best in every field. So he said, I'd like to hear your answer as well. And that is, how would you recommend someone think about meaning or constructing or finding meaning if they've reached the pinnacle of competence or a high level of competence in a certain area? And you can hear, it's his question. And it's the question of his friends who've reached the pinnacle in all their different disciplines. He says this, the interviewer still, I have a friend, I won't name him because I don't know if he would want this public, but I asked him some version of this and he said, well, at some point you either have to find God or have kids and having kids is easier. So I had kids. Well, his kids are probably still young because that bubble can burst pretty quick, can it? So here's Jordan Peterson's response. There are many domains in which to obtain competence. You can find a new do domain. So you reach the pinnacle, what do you do? Well, go find another one. That'll help. But kids, for sure, look, life is quite straightforward in some ways. Find a partner and stick with them. That's hard. Try to make yourself into a better person if you can. It's a challenge. Have kids, have grandkids. Thank God I have grandkids. Thank God I have kids. And so then, if you're lucky, you have other projects and you're healthy enough to undertake them. I wanted to cry for them. I wanted to just like, can we talk? Like, not like I can convince anybody, but you just, oh, I want you to know the hope. Like, he's without hope and without God. 
You can be at the top of your game. And sometimes the rest of us believe, like the, the bubble doesn't get burst because we never do get to the top. And we think if we just got there, then we'd be satisfied. Well, no, we should learn from the people that actually got there and realize like, oh, this isn't without hope and without God. Ecclesiastes is where you are if you're without Christ and therefore without hope and without God. All is vanity and it's a chasing your tail. It's a chasing after the wind. So remember at one time or maybe you're here this morning and this is where you are now. The good news comes next. Verses 13 to 18. But now. So remember, at one time, but now, so then. So second point, but now. Verse 13. But now, in Christ Jesus, you, plural, he's talking to the church, you who once, he's used that word twice already, at one time is translated there, at that time is the same word here, once. You who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. That's why we sung about the blood of Christ. Nothing can wash away my sin except the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace. So, verse 13, but now. Do you remember the but God in verse 4? You were dead in trespasses and sins, but God, because of his great love, while you were still dead in your trespasses and sins, he made you alive together with Christ. So there was but God back in verse 4. Now there's but now in Christ Jesus. You who were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. He, Jesus, is our peace. He's the Prince of Peace. Which is amazing. How in the world can we be brought near to God? God is white, hot, holy. And we are unholy. He is pure. We are impure and unclean. Like evil and sin and imperfection gets incinerated in the presence of God. Remember Isaiah 6 when, when Isaiah, who's the prophet of the people of God, has this vision, gets, you know, in the presence of God. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is full of His glory. I mean, he just feels like he's coming undone. And he says, I am unclean. I live among a people of unclean lips. And he needed atonement. He needed his sin to be covered so that he could be at peace with God, reconciled to God. Atonement, at one meant. Okay? So we can't atone for our own sins. We can't save ourselves. We can't pay the debt of our sin. Only Jesus can do that. And he did. But now. So if Jesus is your Savior, then you can draw near to God with confidence. Like it says in Hebrews 4, you can draw near to the throne of grace. It's not a throne of judgment. It's a throne of grace. Knowing that you will receive mercy and grace to help in your need. So we can only do that because of Jesus in his name. Because he himself is our peace. It's his blood that's taken care of our sin. He has reconciled us to the Father so that we can come with confidence. And this is not just an individualistic kind of peace of mind sort of peace, although that's a byproduct of this peace. This is peace with God peace. Reconciliation with God peace. For he himself is our peace, verse 14 
who made us both one, so it's vertical and horizontal, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments and ordinances. What in the world does that mean? Well, actually, in the first century, in Jerusalem, if you were a Jew, you know, you go to the temple to worship God, and there's actually different courts, you know, kind of like concentric circles. So there's the Holy of Holies, and only the high priest can go in there once a year, and then there's the court of the priests, and then there's the court of Israel, which is really just for the men, and then there's the court of the women, and then down a little bit, and outside this wall, this barrier, is the court of the Gentiles. And on that wall, there was an inscription posted periodically. They've actually unearthed a couple of these um, archaeological efforts. And here's what it said, translation. No foreigner may enter within the barrier and enclosure around the temple. Anyone who is caught doing so will have himself to blame for his ensuing death. And like I said, Jews looked down on Gentiles. They called them dogs, unclean. There was hostility. I mean, this is the explanation for what happened with Paul in Acts 21. I don't know if you remember this incident, but there's a quote, I think, the text. So Jews from Asia, seeing Paul in the temple, stirred up the whole crowd and laid hands on him, crying out, Men of Israel, help! This is the man who is teaching everyone everywhere against the people and the law in this place. Referring to the temple. Moreover, he even brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled this holy place. For they had previously seen Trophimus the Ephesian, a Gentile, with him in the city. And they supposed that Paul had brought him into the temple. He hadn't, but they thought he did. So they seized Paul, dragged him out of the temple, seeking to kill him. You see? Now listen, Paul wrote this letter around 62 A.D. The temple wasn't destroyed until 70 A.D. So the barrier with the signage was still standing when Paul wrote this. So he's talking about this as an illustration, <laughs> as a metaphor for the dynamic. It's like the spiritual barrier has been removed. So, you see, Israel was supposed to be a light to the nations. All the families of the earth were supposed to be blessed through Abraham, right? But they began to despise and look down on the nations. Think about Jonah. Think about the way that the Jews viewed Samaritans in the first century as half-breeds. That's why the parable of the Good Samaritan is so shocking and scandalous. And like I said, they, they referred to Gentiles as dogs. So this, spirit, this is a spiritual barrier that was broken down by the blood of Jesus around 30 A.D., not literally torn down in 70 A.D., although it was. So the law, including circumcision and keeping kosher and clean laws, that determined who was in with God and who was out. But with the death of Christ and the establishment of the new covenant, the horizontal hostility had been removed. The ground is level at the foot of the cross. And Jesus died so that people from every tongue and tribe and people and nation would be brought in to the new covenant community. So look at the purposes of this peace that Jesus won in verse 15. 
that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. So the Caesars of Rome, Augustus initially, could boast of the Pax Romana, the peace of Rome, right, that lasted for like 200 years where Rome enjoyed this golden age of internal peace by and large, but only the Lord Jesus Christ Not Lord Caesar, but the Lord Jesus Christ can bring true and lasting peace to humanity. And he did it by creating a new humanity and reconciling us to God. Look at how the text lays this out. Do you see the two purposes there? That he might first create in himself one new man and second might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross. So what's this new man thing? It's new humanity. One new humanity made up of people from every triangle of people and nation. So taking us from alienation to reconciliation, from hostility, you know, children of wrath, earlier in chapter 2, to peace with God. And this unified humanity is under Christ. He's the head. So we were under Adam before, right? And we fell. And we were spiritually dead. That's old humanity. Now there's a new humanity in Christ. And we are made alive together with him. A new people. New spiritual life. So we're no longer in Adam or even in Abraham. But we're in Christ. New. One new People, one new humanity, and we're all one. Doesn't matter if you're from Korea or Russia or Brazil or wherever, we're all equal, equally beloved brothers and sisters in the same family, the same humanity. Second, to reconcile to God and to each other. So, why did he do this? To create a new humanity and to reconcile us to God and to each other. Verse 16, he did it through the cross. He killed that hostility. Sometimes the only way to peace is by war. So Jesus didn't come and use kid gloves with the enemies of our souls. Like a guy named Armitage Robinson said, the slain was a slayer too. So our divine warrior, the Prince of Peace is a divine warrior. And he came to make war with sin and death and hell for the sake of peace with God and with one another. He condemned sin. He conquered Satan and defanged him. He killed the power of death and took out the sting. So now we have the gospel of peace, good news of peace. So verse 17, he came and preached peace to you who were far off. Who's that? Who's that? Somebody yell it out. Okay, who's the us? Gentiles, okay. And he came and preached peace to you who were near. Who's that? Jews, yeah. For through him, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So he came and preached peace to Gentiles and Jews alike, to all peoples, through Jesus 
We both have access to the Father in one and the same spirit. So that spiritual barrier keeping non-Jews from drawing near to God was broken down by blood and it's still being broken down by the Spirit. In chapter 4, we're going to hear Paul write or hear him say that we need to be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Maintain. He created it. We need to maintain it. So circumcision, keeping kosher, other clean, unclean laws were how people were marked as in and out. But now in the new covenant, Jesus came, brought the gospel of peace to those who were far off and to those who were near. The Jews also needed to repent and believe to be brought in. It's not just something you have by birth. And just look at this beautiful expression of the work of our triune God to save us and to bring us in, to bring us near, to reconcile us and give us peace. Look at verse 18. For through him, that's Jesus the Son, we both, Jews and Gentiles, have access in one spirit to the Father. Isn't that great? One verse, you've got Son, Spirit, and Father. So zoom back out. Remember who you were. Don't forget At one time, you were helpless and hopeless. You were separated from Christ. You're without God. But now, behold what God has done through Christ. In fact, look at what our glorious and gracious triune God has done to reconcile us to himself, to make us a new humanity that is one, unified in Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit. At one time, but now. So then, so now let's ponder the implications of this and by his grace seek to live in light of these truths, okay? Verses 19 to 22. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens. Okay, that's not talking about UFOs in outer outer space. This is like, you know, foreigners, people that are, you know, displaced from their homeland and, and not at home. So, You're no longer that. You are, whether you're a Jew or Gentile, doesn't matter where you're from, you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. We are the temple not a building with some barriers around it. We are where God dwells with his people. Grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. So at one time, but now, so then. So then we are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. No inferiority complex is needed. Doesn't matter if you came from the wrong side of the tracks. No inferiority complex is needed. Doesn't matter if your parents told you you were an accident. You are wanted and welcome. No superior complexes allowed. Christ Jesus is the cornerstone. He is the one by which, you know, it all gets set on that cornerstone, by which 
and upon which it's all built. Who is he? The cornerstone. He is the prince of peace. Blessed be the peacemaker. What was he like? What did he do? He loved all kinds of people when he came in the flesh, right? He welcomed women and children, the poor and the vulnerable. He didn't cater to the powerful and the wealthy. He loved the rich and the poor alike. He wasn't partial. He loved the Samaritans, even though they were despised as half-breeds in the eyes of the Jews. Samaritan woman with a reputation and baggage. He chose to come and be called a Nazarene, to be from Nazareth. You know what that's the equivalent of? He came from a trailer park. Can anything good come out of Nazareth? I mean, that's like Punxsutawney. I, I came from Punxsutawney, so, you know, it's like 9,000 and, you know, one main street through town. And He lifted up those with inferiority and shame. He humbled and warned those with superiority and contempt. Remember the parable of the tax collector and the Pharisee? Because if you're going to follow him, you've got to realize, you've got to accept the fact that the ground is level at the foot of the cross. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and all need to be saved by grace through faith in him. That's the only way. He is the way, the truth, and the life. All of us need to be reconciled to the Father, and that only happens by the blood of the Son. And if that's true, then all of us who are reconciled to the Father are also reconciled to one another as brothers and sisters. We're part of the family, the same family, the same humanity, full-fledged citizens in the kingdom of God and fully welcome members of the same family. So there are no second-class citizens in the kingdom of God. So then, you see implications? You are the saints. You are the members of the household of God. That's who you are. So then, you're no longer outside. You're inside. You've been brought home. You have a home. You belong. How important it is how important is it to know who you are? How important is this for Dalits, the lowest of the low in India? How important is this? How important is this for garbage men and maids who are Christians? How important is this for Wall Street tech and entertainment big shots that are Christians? And not just individually, but corporately. We are one new humanity, so it has implications vertically and horizontally. We are all in Christ and under his headship. He is Lord. I remember hearing, I don't know if the Baumans are here this morning, but Greg Jr. and his wife lived in Manhattan for a while. I think they moved. Um, I know they moved. So I'm not sure if they're still going to the same church or not, but... Um, at a wedding back in the fall, he was telling me about this meal that their church serves after the service each week. And again, I'm not sure if they're doing this during COVID, but this church in Manhattan where the wealthiest and the poorest are living in close proximity, right? And they have this meal after church every Sunday where the richest of the rich and homeless people are eating at the same tables, the same meal. 
Like, how cool is that? How many Wall Street big shots could just go home or go out and spend $400 on lunch? They eat the box lunch at the table with the homeless person. That's beautiful. That's one of those so-thens. You know, James, Jesus' half-brother, pondered the so-thens. Look at chapter 1, verses 9 to 10, and think about the implications. In it. This is part of the so-then of what we're studying here. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation because like a flower of the grass he will pass away. So if you're, if you're lowly and poor, you might tend to think you have this inferiority complex and I don't deserve. Well, none of us deserves. <laughs> You've been raised up with Christ. You're a full-fledged member, citizen of the kingdom of God. You are a beloved you know, brother or sister. You don't have anything to be ashamed of. The rich brother needs to guard his heart because he might be tempted to think too highly of himself. You know what? You know what you need to remember is you're going to pass away. Your money's not going to save you. And then he goes on in chapter 2 and addresses the issue of partiality. My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. Implications. So then, for if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothes comes into your assembly and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, you stand over there, sit down at my feet, have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? God's not made any distinctions. Equal membership in the household, equal membership in the, the kingdom. So listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith? How often is that the case? And heirs of the kingdom, which he promised to those who love him. You've dishonored the poor man. And then he goes on and says, if you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin. So James understood, and he helps us understand the so then of the gospel for horizontal unity. Household is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. The whole structure is joined in Christ, and in and through him it grows. So, Paul writes here about a kingdom, a family, and a temple. In the kingdom, there's no second-class citizens. In the family, everyone in Christ belongs, is welcome and loved. And in the temple, this place where God dwells, the people of God, we can all draw near together and dwell with God, and God dwells with us. So, a little bit more of the so then as we kind of pull this all together. The cross is a dagger in the heart of racism and any other form of superiority. Superiority complex is a human problem, not an American or a white history problem. 
It's a human problem. So we all need to make war with our pride. We're going to sing about it in a few minutes. Pour contempt on all our pride. We need to make war with our pride, the self-righteousness that can so easily crop up, the contempt then that we can pour on other people rather than on our pride, looking down on them as if we're better. So again, in the New Testament times, you've got Jews and Gentiles, Jews and Samaritans. For us today, this applies to all forms of racism or ethnocentrism. But again, it's not just American. You have Arabs and Israelis. (laughs) That's like impossible, right? To see unity there? Oh, no, it's not. We've got friends that live in Israel, and there's been some beautiful fellowship between Arab Christians and Israeli Christians. That's miraculous. Well, that's the power of the gospel. Jesus is the only hope of healing tribalism, whether in the bloody history of the Hutus and the Tutsis or the increasingly polarized tribalism of our United States. There is a so then of the gospel that means that socioeconomic stratification doesn't matter in the church. Classism is anti-gospel. So if you have any of that classism stuff rise up in your heart, like I can, we need to kill it with the dagger of the cross. All caste systems don't matter. Can you imagine? I imagine this happens. I'm not familiar enough with the church in India. But if you could have churches where the Dalits and the Brahmin class are together, all superiority, inferior, it crosses so many different lines, okay? So don't just think, you know, ethnic, racial stuff. Urban towards rural. And rural towards urban. City slickers. Blue collar toward white collar. I know from working some blue collar jobs that I heard the blue-collar guys complain about the white-collar guys. And I've also worked some white-collar jobs, and the white-collar guys complain about the blue-collar guys. Look down on each other. The rich toward the poor, the poor toward the rich, the educated toward the uneducated, the the other way around. Um, The highbrow and the lowbrow, vice versa. The somebodies and the nobodies. Listen, in Christ... Galatians 3, 26 and following. In Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. There's neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither slave nor free. There's no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, even if you're a Gentile, heirs according to promise. So then. So there's no segregation in the kingdom of God. No superiority or inferiority in the kingdom of God. There's no second-class citizens in the kingdom. No discrimination in the family of God. All members of the new covenant community have full welcome to the family. In the new temple, of which Jesus Christ is the cornerstone, which he's building with us as living stones, all of us have equal access, equal right, equal freedom to draw near to God. So, What are some of the applications of these realities for us? John Stott writes this. Deliberately to perpetuate these barriers in the church and even to tolerate them without taking any active steps to overcome them in order to demonstrate the transcultural unity of God's new society 
is to set ourselves against the reconciling work of Christ and even to try to undo it. We need to get the failures of the church on our conscience to feel the offense to Christ and the world which these failures are, to weep over the credibility gap between the church's talk and the church's walk, to repent of our readiness to excuse and even condone our failures, and to determine to do something about it. He wrote that like 40 years ago. So I wonder if sentiments along those lines were in your mind when I read the Martin Luther King quote that 11 a.m. is the most segregated hour in America. Or is it possible, because I've certainly heard things like this among us, or were your first few thoughts something more like, well, yeah, that goes for the black church too. Or, here we go again, pastor's going to accuse us all of being racists, as if I've ever done that. Or something similar with defensiveness and suspicion, okay? Why is it that when issues like this are raised in the predominantly white churches, it's met with defensiveness and pushback? So you're saying I'm a racist? No, that's not what I, I'm saying. We all are subject to superiority complexes. Or it's, I'm not a racist, or I don't have anything against black people. Or, And listen, just please apply this across the board. This goes for all superiority dynamics in the heart, not just white-black relations. Why aren't these concerns met with openness and concern and a listening ear and a desire to understand and prayerfully seek God's wisdom and grace and strength to do our part, even if it's really small, seemingly. Like, what can we do? Well, we can do something. Lord, help us know what our little bit of something is to make things better. So how proactive are you to love and listen and befriend? So very... You, <laughs> very well may not be a racist. I hope not, right? Like, I don't think we're filled with racist or racism here in our church, but we often are pretty inclined to stay in our comfort zone. We don't feel much responsibility to be proactive to try to befriend and listen to and learn from people who are not like us. And sometimes we kind of act like the guy that said to Jesus, so who is my neighbor? Because <laughs> I... Try to justify ourselves. So does the church bear any responsibility for racial reconciliation and unity in America or just, you know, unity in America? Yes, of course. Let's bear that. Because if it's going to get better, the only way it's going to get better is if we actually, by grace, are proactive. So listen, this is kind of discouraging and convicting on one hand. So I ran across this article, Dallas Morning News, back in 2018. When Sunday morning is no longer the most segregated time of the week is the title of the article. The authors quote George Yancey, a sociology professor at the University of North Texas. Americans expect faith communities to contribute to peaceful race relations. Again, please apply this broader than just race relations, but it's a good example. Um... Another Barna study revealed that 73% of Americans agree that churches 
Christian churches play an important role in racial reconciliation. Okay, we at least say we think that's important. Even 53% of the nuns, like they don't have any religion that they align with, agreed. Religious figures have played a very significant role in civil rights and the abolition of slavery in this country, said Zachary Moore. Because of that legacy, people expect the church to play a leading role. Besides, who else is going to do it? And the way that the world oftentimes goes about it isn't always particularly helpful, right? So Yancey says this, and this is what was sobering. The way religion is done today is not the solution. The way religion is done today reflects society's values instead of challenging society's values. Yancey's research reveals that with some exceptions, a person's faith does not alter his or her racial values. It only confirms what bi whatever biases are brought to it. I don't think faith is the source of racism, he says. That's good and objective. But I don't think it lessens racism either. The seeds of the solution are in there, but we don't take them seriously enough. Oh, what an indictment. Again, I'm not saying that that's the case here, but what I am saying is Ephesians 2 is in our Bible, and we don't want to be guilty of these things that we know are true but don't seem to have any impact on how we relate to these issues. Oh, that the church would lead the way in the kind of wise, loving, rich diversity and unity that only the power of the gospel can produce. Only the power of the gospel can produce true, lasting unity. And that's exactly where history is going. Jesus died for it. Revelation 5, 9. He, he ransomed people for God from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. So any amens to that, that the, the church would lead the charge in this, that we would show the world what substantive, wise, rich, loving unity is across not just black and white, but all kinds of barriers that are set up all over the place in our world. So Craig Keener writes this, and I'm almost done. How central is unity in Christ? It's central enough to transcend all, over, all other loyalties. All other loyalties. So that loyalty to Christ entails loyalty to one another as God's family above all ethnic, cultural, and earthly kinship connections. It is central enough that Paul repeatedly emphasizes as a necessary corollary implication of the gospel. So, how do we put these truths into action? There's lots of ways at the very least, but if we stick tightly to the text, remember, regularly remember who you were at one time. You were hopelessly at odds with God, and yet now, amazingly, by a miracle of grace, you're reconciled to God. So you and I, we might feel, we look around the church in America, and we see like so much division, but wait, we have the power of the resurrection at work among us. Like, we can be hopeful. We need to know that power, right? Paul's praying that we would know that power. And we can do our little part by his power and his grace. So remember who you were at one time. Remember how Paul recounted all those blessings of being in Christ, and then he prayed that the Ephesians would really experientially know. Well, the same thing here, I think, as well. We know that that's who we were and this is who we are, but the superiority complexes creep up, don't they? So we need to pray 
that we would know and experience who we really are. (laughs) We'd appropriate what's true, living it out in loving application in the midst of our conflict-ridden, contentious, divisive age. So, blessed be the peacemaker. He has blessed us. We're former enemies, totally hostile with every spiritual blessing in Christ. He's reconciled us to himself, making peace by the blood of the cross. He's reconciled us to each other, brothers and sisters, creating one new humanity. So at one time, but now, so then, blessed are the peacemakers. They shall be called sons of God because he is the peacemaker. And our peace-loving, peacemaking lives as his people are intended to be to the praise of his glorious peacemaking grace. Let's pray and then we're going to sing When I Survey the Wondrous Cross in preparation for participating together at the table. Father, I pray that you would help us to hear what you are saying and not react um, and run down all kinds of rabbit trails or whatever and just kind of miss the point here. Help us to be soft and receptive to what you have to say. Remind us who we were. Help us to just behold and be amazed and be thrilled and grateful with what you have done. And Lord, help us to wrestle with and figure out and seek your help both individually and together for what the implications are and how to live in light of these truths. So help us to begin by getting our our eyes on the cross and surveying what you've done and allowing that to shine light on the path. In Jesus' name, amen.